She's Tori. And he's Nick. And this is I Want to Rewatch. An X-Files adjacent podcast. Kolchek the Night Stalker. Episode 11. Horror in the Heights. So in this episode, it would appear that elderly people in a Jewish neighborhood are dying of natural causes and then being eaten by rats before being discovered. Ooh. Yeah. So Kolchak wants to write a feature series on the plight of the elderly and the failure of the city's institutions to protect them. But then things don't seem to add up. And Kolchak thinks the victims are actually dying because they're being eaten. <gasps> alive. Uh. And not by rats. Ooh. Yeah, so kind of disturbing. So this episode was written by Jimmy Sangster and directed by Michael T. Caffey. And its original air date was December 20th, 1974 at 10 p.m. All right. So we get the normal credit sequence. And then I need to stop calling it the credit sequence because then we have a credit sequence. It's just like the opening sequence. Yeah, yeah the opening theme kind of because it's like where you get the theme song kind of thing. So mm-hmm. not really. I don't know if you call it a song. I guess it's still a song. It's, not worth it. it's, just, it's yeah. an instrumental song. Yeah. So we get the opening theme sequence and then we get an aerial view of Chicago and we follow the elevated train as Kolchak gives us this voiceover. There are sections of Chicago the guidebooks don't refer to. You can't blame them, really. The guidebooks function to sell the glamour and excitement of our windy city. And whichever way you dress it up, old age is neither glamorous nor exciting. Roosevelt Heights used to be a plush neighborhood, but the plush neighbors moved uptown, leaving the old people. And old people don't move easily. They become set in their surroundings. Their friends live next door. They've been going to the same store for 25 years. And probably most important of all, they can't afford to relocate, even if they wanted to. The battle of fixed income versus galloping inflation never ends. But even inflation took a back seat here in Roosevelt Heights as a far greater fear overtook the residents. A terror which effectively dwarfed everything else. And for you youngins, so inflation was a big thing in the 70s. So just so you know. It's a big thing now, but you know. Well, it's a big fake thing now, but yeah. I mean, basically, all money's fake. But if you're poor, you're screwed anyway. Because even though money's yeah. not real, the rich people have managed to corner it all and hoard mm-hmm. it like dragons. And they'll always say prices have to go up because we had to pay people more. And so uh-huh. we can't pay people more. You have to yeah, pay so. 30 more cents for your burrito. Because even though our CEO is making millions of dollars, we now have to pay people what barely amounts to a living wage in most cities. And because of that, your burrito is a little more expensive. Which, by the way... I will happily pay 30 more cents for a burrito if it means the person making it can pay their rent. Yeah. You know, so not a big deal. But also, they could also just, anyway, now we're, see, I'm ranting today. I got to stop ranting. (laughs) It's all right. right. I'm not ranting today. It's a nice change of pace. It's very ranty. I don't know why. Sometimes I'm just in a mood. It's because you had to pay 30 cents more for your burrito. That's why you just don't want to accept it. So anyway, the scene changes tonight and we see an older gentleman walking across the street in a kind of rundown neighborhood. And we assume that this is Roosevelt Heights and he's carrying a bottle of what we assume to be some fortified wine or maybe just some regular wine. We don't know, but it's in a brown paper bag. He's reasonably well dressed, though. He's got a suit, vest, hat, glasses. And after looking around to make sure no one is looking, despite the streets being like completely empty, he enters Kentucky Made Packing Company. And then Kolchak's voiceover continues. October 14th, when Harry Starman was about to break the law, 
He'd done it before many times. Gambling on Friday night was forbidden by Hebrew law. So to escape his wife and to escape going to temple, Harry and his cohorts took drastic measures. So Harry's walking through the inside of the lower level. And it's like just full of like dumpsters and barrels and trash cans with like just like ribs sticking out of it. Like just dead animal carcasses, like big hunks of everything. Yeah, it doesn't really seem like sanitary disposal procedures. No. And Coltec tells us that there were other residents of Roosevelt Heights. The locals had tried to get rid of them a couple of times. But with the fact that the garbage collection wasn't as efficient as it could have been, they hadn't been too successful. And those other residents are rats. And so the dumpsters are full of animal carcasses. And they're also full of rats getting their fill from the scraps hanging off the bones. And Harry kind of like cringes. And then he goes up a flight of stairs. And as he enters the upstairs room, we see there are three elderly gentlemen sitting at a card table and they're like, you're late. And he's like, late. I had to get this. And he puts down the bagged bottle of booze on the table and he says they raised the prices again. And so they all owe him 50 cents. And then one of them who's dressed as a security guard and probably is a security guard says that Harry still owes him from the bottle that he brought last time. And they argue back and forth about whether he's paid or not. And then they finally get ready to start their card game. And then they realize there's no glasses for the wine. And so the security guard guy is like, all right, all right, I'll go down and get them. But apparently he has to go downstairs to get the glasses. So he gets up and then he's like, ah, and he still, you never paid. So telling Harry. And then he tells another guy who we've actually seen before. And we'll get back to that. But he's shuffling the cards and security guard guy is like, eh, and don't stack the deck while I'm gone. So then he's like, oh, I hate going down there because there's so much meat. There's bacon and ham hocks and pig knuckles. And he just hates going down there. And so we assume that they're all Jewish. And that's why, like, the pork thing is an issue. And they're like, well, who told you to take this job? And then it turns out he took the job on the side and is not claiming it so that he doesn't lose any of his Social Security payments. And so they all laugh. Ha, ha, ha. And then they get ready to start their game. And he goes down to get the glasses. So then we get another voiceover from Kolchak. And we learn who the security guard is. His name is Buck Feynman. He's 72 years old, a cantankerous geezer. No one liked him much, but they allowed him to play poker with them once a week because he was a terrible card player and had been known to lose as much as 75 cents in a single evening. Also, his part-time job allowed their group a safe hiding place for their clandestine games of chance. For Buck's case, this particular night, it was too clandestine. And they play penny poker, which is why losing 75 cents is a big deal. Mm -hmm. So Buck is walking through the dumpster area and he's about to go down another flight of stairs. I guess he has to go to the basement to get the glasses. But then he sees something by one of the dumpsters. And then we cut to like a reverse angle and we see a point of view that shows us what looks like this hairy fang Bigfoot looking thing hunkered down over one of the barrels filled with meat. But then we cut back to Buck's point of view and we see this older gentleman kind of stand up and turn around. And Buck is like, Rabbi Shulman, what are you doing here? And he's like, hey, no matter what my wife told you, this is still, we only play penny, so it's not really gambling. And the rabbi just keeps slowly walking towards him. And then the rabbi stretches his arms out like he's going to give Buck a hug. And Buck is like, ah, and he goes in for a hug with the rabbi. Mm -hmm. And then we cut from behind and we see this hairy monster thing embrace Buck. And then it fades to black because it's commercial time. And we know what commercial time means. And so poor Buck. Uh, rabbi Schulman, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> I think maybe it's it's not really the rabbi. Mm, I don't know. Anyway. Maybe the rabbi is a were monster. Ooh. Or we see his true nature. Maybe he's really a demon. 
So then we come back from the commercial and we get the title credits over Kolchak driving through the city at night. And then as the credits finish, Kolchak pulls up to Kentucky Made Packing Company. And there's police and an ambulance on site and a small crowd on the sidewalk. And then in voiceover, he tells us, normally an old guy dropping dead wouldn't get me to cross the road. But things were pretty quiet that week. And there was something in the report that I'd picked up over the police radio that didn't sound strictly kosher. So inside, the ambulance techs are strapping the body to the gurney and it's wrapped in a blanket. And there are people taking photos. And there's this cop, Officer York, and he's arguing with Harry and the other two men who had been playing poker. And they're like, why do we have to deal with this stuff? And they get frustrated and walk away. So Kolchak goes up to York and York basically tells him that an old guy croaked. And Kolchak is like, croaked? That's not a great word. And York is like, fine, whatever. He passed away. And Kolchak's like, passed away from what? And York is like, just kind of annoyed, frustrated, not really interested. He's like, I don't know, old age, boredom. You know, he's not very good at doing his job. No, yeah. So the ambulance techs walk the body past and Kolchak goes to look at it. And York's like, I wouldn't do that if I were you. And Kolchak is just like, whatever. And he's like, son, I've seen more dead bodies than you've had TV dinners. And he pulls back the blankets and he looks at the corpse. We don't really see it, but presumably it's kind of mauled and not in good shape. And Kolchak's like, oh yeah, old age and boredom. And he like drops the blanket. And Kolchak again asks how it happened. And York is like, I don't know. This neighborhood's full of old people and rats. Sometimes the rats get hungry. And then he leaves and Kolchak sees Harry and the other two men are standing there. So he kind of goes up to them and hears him saying, oh, if only we hadn't asked him to go get the glasses. And so Kolchak's, you know, going to go interview them and see what's up. And I kind of like, like when they're talking about the dead guy and like the officers being kind of like disrespectful about it. And he mentions like, oh, he just died of old age. Like Kolchak's like, well, you know, you're going to get old someday too, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Although. Maybe not. Maybe? But, you know, in maybe theory, not. you're going to get old too. <laughs> so maybe don't be a jerk about it. Yeah. So from the other guys, we find out that Buck's real name is actually Julius. He was called Buck because he got the name from the movies. He was a big movie fan. Yeah, maybe Buck Rogers. Maybe. Yeah. And then the one guy we've seen before is like, are you a reporter? And Kolchak is like, yep, yep. And then Harry's like, if you're a reporter, why don't you report to this to the health department and tell them to get rid of all these rats? And then that guy we've seen before, his name's actually Joe. And he's like, health department? Hey, don't you work for the health department? Because Joe is one of the guys that we saw in the Spanish Moss murders. Mm-hmm. And he was the building super who came down to the basement where the hippie got killed. So Kolchak had lied to him and told him at the time that he was working for the health department. Yeah. So because Kolchak loves to, <laughs> to assume identities. And Kolchak's like, oh, uh, no, that's that's my brother. My brother works for the health department. He makes a uh, quarantine signs for buildings. So yeah. Yeah. what I love about this is that the Spanish Moss murders and horror in the Heights aren't written by the same writers and not directed by the same directors, but yet the creative team was still able to like make connections between the episodes with minor characters. And I kind of like that because yeah. we've talked many times about how X-Files kind of drops the ball on some of that stuff. Like, I think they've only done it once that we know of with gender bender and sleepless and uh, detective Horton, even though he like switches towns, he goes from Germantown, Maryland to New York city. But at least he played like the same actor plays the same character. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. But, the X-Files yeah. doesn't really have recurring minor characters. 
they have recurring characters, obviously, like they have Skinner, Cigarette Smoking Man, but like as far as minor characters go, they generally don't have recurring, which is too bad because if we've noted, yeah. well, because like, yeah, some great characters like Fire Freak Beatty and like mm-hmm. the coroner and just like really cool people that would yeah. be fun to see again, but because they're all over the nation and moving around so much. Agent Henderson, the handwriting analysis. Yeah, she would be a good one to bring back in, but for some reason they just tend not to do that. Especially because they're FBI, so that would be natural. Like, they go to different places, so, like, they're not in the same city like Kolchak is, but they do have, like, agents that they could bring in her yeah they don't have a ton of that going on at least not yet i mean we're only halfway well we're most of the way through season two i don't know if that'll start to happen at all or if it just never does yeah another clue that we record these way before they're coming out so yeah sorry (laughs) (laughs) as of recording we've (laughs) just finished episode 19 of season two so yeah yeah we're a little little ahead of the game which makes it hard because we've had conversations about how like we want to we want to mention things that we've been watching them and we're seeing little link-ups between like cold check and the x-files but we don't want to mention them in the x-files podcast because this stuff has not come out yet so it's like yeah. we don't want to yeah <laughs> oh, oh time is a fun fun thing so harry goes on about the rats more and cold checks like you should see the one i work for <laughs> Poor Vincenzo. And Harry's like, no, I'm talking about real rats, the flesh-eating kind that eat you before you even get a decent Jewish burial. That'll eat you while you're still warm. And so Kolchak kind of asks, like, how long has Buck been dead? And they're like, well, we were playing cards and he went to get some glasses and he didn't come back. And then we went to look for him. So couldn't have been more than like a half hour. And so they think he probably had a heart attack or something and the rats ate him. But that does seem very quick. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we already know what happened. The rabbi ate him. So. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it was the rabbi, but yeah, that's what it looked like. So then Kolchak's in Vincenzo's office, and Vincenzo is reading Kolchak's story. And he honestly doesn't think it's much of a story. And Kolchak's like, well, there has to be more. It couldn't have just been a half hour for rats to eat that much of the body. Like, that doesn't make sense. And Vincenzo says that it's a neighborhood of old people. And, you know, old people start to go senile. And Kolchak's like, old age doesn't necessarily mean senility. And maybe something else is going on. And so I guess we're kind of carrying, like, I know last episode we mentioned gray power. And, Mm -hmm. yeah. So Vincenzo finally agrees and says that Kolchak can put his story on the wire. But he needs to take out that bleeding heart stuff. And Kolchak's like, bleeding heart stuff? And he's like... Basically, Vincenzo doesn't want him to use the phrase the tragic death of Julius Feynman because he thinks calling it a tragic death is too much. And Vincenzo's like, just make it the death of Julius Feynman. Vincenzo's afraid of coming across as publicly accusing the sanitation department of malfeasance. And so he does tell Kolchak he's a good angle for the story. And if he can get more facts that back him up, then they can go ahead and like publish like a bigger story but basically he doesn't want to cause trouble until they have like actual facts behind it yeah vincendo does not like trouble no he really doesn't because he's the one who has to deal with it so so kolchak sarcastically is like you're a real crusader and then he whips out a voucher and asks him to sign it and vincendo's like what's this and kolchak's just like just sign it just sign it i gave harry a few bucks he's on a pension you know so basically (laughs) he's expensing the money that he gave to harry and Vincenzo signs it and Kolchak tells him that he's like Richard the Lionheart, Patrick Henry and Mother Teresa rolled up in one big pinstripe suit. And then as Kolchak walks away, Vincenzo picks up his phone and calls Manny's and he like 
preemptively clutches his stomach like he has heartburn and he tells him to send up a corned beef sandwich and a bottle of cream soda and make sure it has fresh pickles this time. Yeah. Which, honestly, that sounds really good. I would like one of those also. Yeah, I don't know about the pickles on a corned beef sandwich, but I, I mean pickles you... on the side, I think. Yeah, okay. That's what I was picturing because I don't I like yeah. pickles, but I don't like them on sandwiches. I yeah, I usually don't either. Just but I like it when you get like a, a pickle with your sandwich like on the side. I always think that's really good. So then Kolchak walks across the office and it must be really late. And the only other person in the office is Miss Emily. And she's sitting at her desk and he's like, oh, you're working late, Miss Emily. And she's like, yes, yes. I'm helping out with the advice column. These poor people's letters. They have so many problems. Yeah. And so this is the first time we actually get Miss Emily working on the Dear Emily column that we first saw in The Ripper, the very first episode when the dear Emily writer was on vacation and Carl had to read the letters and like strangely interacted with Ruth McDivitt who plays Miss Emily, but then was playing a different character in that episode. And so, man, if you missed like nine episodes in between, you are so confused right now because you're like, what is this lady doing in the office and doing the letters? And I'm kind of confused anyway, because like she says she's helping out with the the column. Yeah. So she's still not her column (laughs) because she's the puzzles. Because she's the puzzles, right? She does right. the puzzles. So I guess so. she, yeah, I don't know. Maybe Dear Emily is just a name they use. but I, I, just... I And I don't know because I haven't watched. I don't know if they're going to, because you know, whenever you hear Miss Emily talked about, you hear about that she does a Miss Emily column. And so I don't know if this is like the first of her transitioning into like, it's just going to become like, she does it. So maybe we'll find out. Or maybe yeah. people just assume she does because it seems that way. And then we get this episode maybe. and we're like, but I'm yeah. only helping with it. It's like, what? <laughs> I thought yeah. that was your job. I mean, she, I mean, she <laughs> played the old lady who wrote the letter to Dear Emily in the first episode. Right. And then the first time she appears as Mrs. Cowles, she's actually Edith Cowles, even though she's called Emily in the episode. And then she's Emily. And then so, yeah. It's, and then her last name gets spelled different ways. So, yeah, there's a there's some banging out the dance going on yeah that's okay (laughs) they're figuring it out on the fly a little bit so yeah i mean that happens too as tv shows progress sometimes you start out in one role and then as the show kind of evolves Mm -hmm. so it's not Not we haven't seen that before nope never never so they talk a little bit about one of the letters and she has kolchek read it and it's from a 73 year old man with a horrible problem of being surrounded by women and basically the letter is you know he's he's having some issues mm-hmm. that might be solved by a little blue pill and but that blue pill doesn't <laughs> exist yet so. it doesn't and so Kolchek is kind of like well tell him to get on some hormones and talk to his doctor about some hormones and so yeah that's his solution and then she sees his story on the desk and she asks if she can read it and he's like sure and she lets him know that she only took this job as a stepping stone for something else because what she really wants to do is be a writer. And she's actually been writing a detective novel. And so she opens the drawer and pulls out a manuscript and she hands it to Kolchek and he's like, oh, good for you. And so he kind of looks through her manuscript and she tells him that she needed life experience and she wasn't getting any in her little place. And so this way she gets to experience life in the city and she has access to typewriters and the paper is free. <laughs> And Kolchak, as he's looking at the detective novel, is clearly not impressed by her writing. And he kind of hands it back to her and he says, that's a great attitude to have. And he gives her a kiss on the forehead and he heads out. And he tells her when she's done reading his article to make sure that she gives it to Martha so it can go on the wire. 
And then we pan across the room and we see that Martha is standing at the teletype machine so that she can like wire out anything that needs to be sent out. Mm -hmm. And then someone else comes into the office and hangs up their coat. So I guess it's super early in the morning or people work all hours. I mean, it is a, it is a news service. So I can imagine that people have different hours and are coming in at all hours to type stuff up after they go to things. Yeah, so it must be pretty, yeah, it must be either really late or really early because it's still the same night that all the stuff happened. So, yeah, continuous kind of night morning thing. But apparently it's not that early because then we cut and we see a movie marquee for a film called The Fever, and it's rated R, and it's playing at the Regent. And we see an older couple coming out of the movie theater, and there's other couples like walking around on the sidewalk. So, and then we get Kolchak's voiceover, and he tells us, if Vincenzo was going to give me a feature series on Roosevelt Heights, I'd need more background, lots more. But right now, I'd had enough. I was tired and I wanted to go home. Maybe if I'd done my job properly and gone back to Roosevelt Heights that night, the Goldsteins would still be alive. So if that couple we saw coming out of the theater or the Goldsteins, it sounds like things aren't going to go very well for them tonight. Nope. And by the way, The Fever is not a real movie, although there is a movie later that will be made later that is called The Fever. I think it's got yeah, Angelina Jolie. It's actually, Jolie. yeah, it's actually but, based on a book. Yeah, I looked at it. I was like, is this a real movie? Yeah. And I was not. also thinking maybe it was a play on Saturday Night Fever, but Saturday Night Fever didn't come out till 77. So yeah. it's not even that. Yeah, so, so it's just like a fake That title. was my first thought was that they were just trying to like Saturday Night Fever stuff, but nope. So, yeah. So they're walking away from the movie theater and the woman, Miriam Goldstein, says she didn't really understand the movie. And her husband, Saul, says, what's to understand about movies these days? They take off their clothes. That's all that matters. And he kind of laments that like Jeanette McDonald and Nelson Eddy, they never took off their clothes. And Miriam's like, oh, neither did we. And so they have like a little banter about how like, you know. Maybe when they were younger, they should have been more carefree and left the lights on. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't understand why, you know, they were, you know, it was silly, silly youth being embarrassed by stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and then they're heading home and he starts to go a different way. And she's like, where are you going? And he's like, well, I'm going to take the shortcut. And she doesn't want to take the shortcut. And he's like, you take the shortcut all the time. And she's like, well, that was before Mr. Feynman died. And he's like, what, Mr. Feynman's going to jump out and kill you? And she's like, he didn't die. He was killed by the person that's doing that all over the neighborhood. And she points to several swastikas that are painted on a building. Mm-hmm. And Saul is just like, those are just kids, Miriam. Kids don't go around killing people. Although if kids are painting swastikas on buildings, maybe they do. Like, that's not a good sign. Talk to your children. That's not okay. Uh, <laughs> that's my interjection. But hmm. yeah. So... She's like, well, what did kill Mr. Feynman? And like, Saul's like, he was pushing 80, you know, it happens. And so she's like, I'm not going to take the shortcut. And he's like, well, fine. I'll have cocoa ready for you when you get home. And he heads off down the alley to take the shortcut. Yeah. And she kind of looks a little unsure. And like, she's maybe, you know, not really sure if she just goes a long way. And eventually she runs to catch up with him and she tells him that he's stubborn and he's like my feet hurt so they walk down the alley and a noise startles them and they look around and Saul's like oh it's nothing he's trying to reassure her and they walk some more and they hear like another cat screech and a hiss and Miriam's very scared and so Saul pats her shoulder and they continue hesitantly and then a policeman appears from behind some crates and both of them are like oh thank goodness it's just a police officer 
And so they even say like, oh, you know, they kind of laugh it off and they're like, good evening, officer. And they're kind of like, yeah, we, uh, we were pretty freaked out by that noise. And then we get the over the shoulder view and we see that it's actually a hairy creature and we hear it growl. And Miriam's like, oh, we're so silly. I can't believe I was afraid. And the officer kind of reaches out to them and we cut back and we see the creature grab them, kind of embrace them. And then we hear screams. And then it's commercial. Yes, indeed. Poor Goldsteins. I know. Yeah. So in this episode, we see right-handed swastikas, the kind that go clockwise, which are the actual, like, that's the ones the Nazis use. But then we also see left-handed swastikas that go counterclockwise. And so we'll see both. Actually, the left-handed ones seem to be more prominent in this episode. But in Education Corner, so from Britannica.com, the swastika as a symbol of prosperity and good fortune is widely distributed throughout the ancient and modern world. The word derived from the Sanskrit swastika, meaning conducive to well-being. It was a favorite symbol on ancient Mesopotamian coinage. In Scandinavia, the left-handed swastika was the sign for the god Thor's hammer. The swastika also appeared in early Christian and Byzantine art, and it occurred in South and Central America among the Maya and in North America, principally among the Navajo. In India, the swastika continues to be the most widely used auspicious symbol of Hindus, Jains, and Buddhists. In the Buddhist tradition, the swastika symbolizes the feet or the footprints of Buddha. Among the Jainans, it is the emblem of the seventh saint and is also said to remind the worshiper of the four possible places of rebirth. A clear distinction is made between the right-hand swastika, which moves in the clockwise direction, and the left-hand swastika, more correctly called the savastika. I knew how to say that at one point, and then I forgot, which moves in a counterclockwise direction. The right-hand swastika is considered a solar symbol, imitating the course of the sun, and the left-hand swastika more often stands for night, the terrifying goddess Kali, and magical practices. So now you know, and no one is half the battle. Don't put swastikas in places unless it's like part of your religion. And being a racist is not a religion. So yeah, in the the Western world, unfortunately, like the swastika might've meant those things at one point. Now it means very specific other things. So yeah, don't. Yeah. And most don't people do don't that. recognize the difference between the left and the right. I mean, the right is. I wouldn't. Yeah, I would yeah. just, you know, so I got to say, watching this like, episode ah. was very like, mm. like I knew what they were doing, but it was pretty hard to watch because everything's yeah. just like, oh, that's a lot. And I know that they're not trying to be Nazi symbols, but it's just like, it's a little yeah. hard. Although it does come up. So. I mean, they do mention why and we they do explain yeah. it, but it's still, it's pretty. Because we are in a Jewish neighborhood. Yeah, that also makes it uncomfortable. (laughs) Uh, Anyway. So there are police cars in the alley as Kolchak pulls up. And in voiceover, Kolchak tells him that someone called him in the middle of the night to tell him what happened. But he's not actually sure what happened because the person who called was so hysterical, they basically didn't make any sense. And we see Officer York is leaning against a wall, writing in his notebook. And Kolchak asked him who croaked this time. And, you know, he's basically like, get away. Like, he doesn't want to answer Kolchak's questions. And Kolchak's like, come on, just a name. And so York tells him that it was Mr. or Mrs. Goldstein. And Kolchak asked if they were chewed up too. And York walks away and he's like, I'm not a quiz show host. They make more money than I do. And so Kolchak is just like, yeah, and they tell better jokes too. And he goes over to the area where the Goldsteins were murdered. 
And we can see outlines on the ground and ambulance techs are finishing strapping up the bodies to gurneys. And Kolchak takes some photos. And then Harry Starmer whispers to him from behind some crates. And he tells Kolchak he knows who did it. And Kolchak's kind of like, okay, sure. And Harry continues to tell him like, nope, I know who did it. And Kolchak's like, you should go home. And Harry's like, I'm the one who called you. And Kolchak's like, well, why didn't you tell me it was you? And Harry's just like, oh, I, I didn't. So clearly he was extremely hysterical and didn't even really know what he was saying. Yeah. And also remember, this is the same night. This is all still the same night. So, yeah. Is it? I thought it was the next night. So that No, it's still the same night because wow. he got called in the middle of the night. So, yeah, because it's the same night. There's a story happens with Buck. And then he's in the office telling Vincenzo about it. He talks to Miss Emily. And then we're like later that night oh yeah right? you're right yeah no, and it then is. it's them and so then someone calls so he's already gone he'd gone home because he was tired but then someone called him at home so he must have gave harry his number i guess and yeah he learned anything but yeah so kolchak and harry are standing across from lakshmi restaurant food of india and harry says that's where the killer lives he's a hindu and kolchak is like why would a hindu kill the goldsteins and harry's like because they were jewish and he's a nazi and <laughs> i mean that's to be fair what Nazis do, although it is it is hard to imagine that a, a Hindu gentleman would be a Nazi, I guess, not equal mm -hmm. opportunity. But Koltek actually points that out. He's like, there aren't really a lot of Hindu Nazis in the world. And Harry says that the owner has been putting swastikas all over the wall behind this restaurant. And the restaurant opened a couple of months ago, right after rats chewed up Miss Resnick. And that's when the swastikas in the neighborhood started showing up as well. And what kind of nut opens up a Hindu restaurant in a Jewish neighborhood? He's not a fan of kosher chutney. Although I got to say, like, I mean, why wouldn't you open an Indian restaurant in a Jewish neighborhood? Well. <laughs> Jewish people can eat Indian food. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, also, it's the 70s, so. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. yeah. So Kolchak says, all right, well, let's go see. So they walk past the restaurant and they go around to the alley behind it. And there are indeed swastikas on the alley, both left-handed and right-handed swastikas on the walls. But over the fence behind the restaurant is apparently the mother load. So Kolchek stacks up a few crates and climbs over. But Harry's like, I'll wait here in the alley. Like, I can barely manage stairs. I'm just going to sit here on a crate. So he sits down on a crate. So Kolchek hops over. And like, indeed, there are like a ton of swastikas on the wall on the back of the restaurant. They're orange and yellow. They're predominantly left-handed ones with a few right-handed ones. And so Kolchak takes several photos. And there's also like garbage, like just everywhere, overflowing garbage cans and all of the ground. So the city sanitation department is probably deserving of an expose, if nothing else. But Harry's just sitting there and he's kind of looking around because he's bored. He's waiting for Kolchak to come back. And then he turns around and he actually sees Kolchak coming around the corner from where they entered the alley. And he calls out and he's like, how did you get, how did you get around there? And then from within the fence area, Kolchak's like, I'm not around there. I'm around here. And so Harry is kind of confused and he stands up and Kolchak just keeps walking towards him. And he's like, Mr. Kolchak. And then we hear him cry out and there's like this sound. Mm -hmm. So Kolchak like rushes over the fence, boom, 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 jumps over, but it's too late. Harry is dead in the alley. We see his broken glasses and then we see his feet like sticking out from behind some crates. And then from the front of the alley, an old Indian man dressed all in white appears and says, Raksasha. And then he disappears back around the corner. So Kolchak runs over there, but like the dude is totally like gone. So then he runs back to Harry's body. And then as he gets there, some police pull up and Kolchak's like, oh, so now you show up. And then he takes a photo 
and they just kind of shine the light in his face. And he realizes that he's in trouble. Because once yep. again, Kolchak is the only person standing around a dead body. Yep. Doesn't look good. <laughs> no. Never does. Does Jessica Fletcher get arrested a lot? I don't remember. I don't think so. I think she's suspected of murder a couple times, but I don't think it's very frequent. I mean, she is the most rampant serial killer of our time. but She is not. <laughs> she's very. She's a very good private detective. She's just a nice old lady. She's a nice amateur detective who writes who books. Kills people. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so Kolchak's sitting in an office with two detectives and they're like, let's go over this one more time. And Kolchak's like, this will be the fifth time. And they question why Harry didn't climb the fence. And Kolchak's like, well, he was old. He couldn't climb the fence. And one of them suggests maybe he was afraid of Kolchak. And Kolchak says he needs to get his head examined. And one of the other detectives stands up and removes a coat. And he says he loves wise guys. And he starts rolling up his sleeves. And Kolchak continues with his story. He climbed the fence. Harry stayed in the alley. He took some photos. He heard Harry scream. Yeah. Why is that cop rolling up his sleeves? I don't know. Maybe he's going to do not nice good. things to Kolchak. Maybe. Um, but then outside in the hallway, Vincenzo and a lawyer approach the door. And they hear Kolchak cry out. So they rush in. And the thuggy cop is standing up while Kolchak calmly remains seated. And Vincenzo asks Broadman, the bruiser cop, if he's up to it again. Wasn't he brought up on charges for roughing people up a few years ago? And he asks Kolchak if he's fine. And the other cop says he was just giving them his testimony. So Vincenzo is surprised and disappointed at the way the police are behaving. And he hands Broadman some paperwork and tells Kolchak he's out. So Kolchak leaves and Vincenzo whips out his notebook and he takes Boardman's name down and then asks for the other one because he's new. And so they kind of protest, but they end up giving his name as Thomas. And so Vincenzo's maybe, maybe going to report them. Yeah, Vincenzo's not taking any shit because nope. he's the only one who gets to abuse Kolchak. Apparently. <laughs> to be so. fair, Kolchak definitely gives as well as he takes. Yeah. So Kolchak's scream was because he was imitating Harry screaming. Right. That's what yes. they heard. And then, yeah. yeah. So it's the next day and Kolchak's driving through a suburban Finally. area. Whew. I know. It's been a long night. Woof. Yeah. Uh, and Kolchak's driving through a suburban area and he tells us that the police claim Harry Starmer died of natural causes and was eaten by rats. Case closed. Which maybe that argument is passable for Buck Feynman. It's a little suspicious for the Goldsteins because, again, just the speed with which that happened was too much. But for Harry Starmer, Kolchak was there and it had been less than like a few minutes before he saw the body. There's no way that this guy could like have had a heart attack and been eaten by rats in like 60 seconds. Yeah. So Kolchak visits an exterminator, Frank Rebus, who had fumigated the INS offices last January and basically asks him like, how long would it take rats to eat a human body? And basically finds out that a pack of rats can strip a steer in about four minutes if they were incredibly hungry. So that doesn't seem impossible for Buck Feynman or the Goldsteins. But he asks if they could do a human-sized carcass in a minute. And Rivis says, you'd be amazed at what they can do, especially if denied a normal food source. But a minute, that's pretty impossible. That's like piranha territory. So then it's nighttime and Kolchak parks his Mustang and he goes into Lakshmi restaurant and he's sitting at a table and he's the only person in the restaurant. And so a waiter comes over and he's wearing traditional East Indian clothing. And that's in quotes because it is clearly Hollywood's version of traditional yeah. East Indian clothing. 
And he puts a meal down in front of Kolchak and he announces it as Magumbak, which is, I'm not sure if that's real or not. I could not find, I tried multiple spellings and I could not find it as actually being anything. And I even tried to reverse it as what we find out it's going to be, that it's beef curry. But yeah, yeah so it might, might not be real. And when Kolchak asks what it is, the waiter basically drops the fake Indian accent and says it's beef curry. And the waiter, Barry, is actually a young Jewish guy from the neighborhood. So from Barry, Kolchak learns that the owner of the restaurant is pretty strange. And he was overheard talking to some of the older Jewish residents, asking if any of them had seen old friends or family recently. And when one quipped that all his friends were dead, Barry's boss said it didn't matter if they were dead or alive, only if they had been seen recently. Mm. Which is, you know, a little strange. That's weird. Yeah. Although, man, yeah. beef, I could, I need to find it. I'm sure there are like 500 really good Indian restaurants near me, but I really need to find one because I haven't found one in my new neighborhood since I moved in. Or you can just make it at home. Yeah. But I mean, when you get takeout Indian food, it's so much better than when I try to make it. Like I've tried well, I know, it, but it always turns out so much better when you get it from a restaurant. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. But so we're going to talk more about Barry the Waiter later. But there's one thing I know that Tori was very excited about. Yes. He apparently, in the 80s and 90s, he played the voice of Donatello in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle cartoon. And he mm. also actually played the voice of Bebop, too. So, yeah. And then, like, other random voices, too. But yeah, he was Donatello and mm. Bebop in the cartoon. Yep. Which, in the 80s and early 90s, was one of my brother and I's favorite cartoons. And, like, me and my brother Andrew dressed up as Ninja Turtles for Halloween. I was Michelangelo, obviously. And he was Leonardo. And it was just... I don't know. I really loved that show when I was a kid, so that's exciting to me. <laughs> yeah, he also has credits as Donatello '87 and Bebop '87 in the new Nickelodeon Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoons. So I don't know if there's some like time travel thing that happens or what, but he actually does have recent credits as both those characters too. But as Donatello, the old version. Yeah. So yeah, I haven't seen the new one, but I'm assuming they must either go back or flashback or something like that to the original, and that's why yeah. he's credited. But yeah, that cartoon was my childhood. So, well, it was a big part of it anyway. <laughs> so, hey. Yeah. So then after they're finished talking, Kolchek is like, where's the bathroom? And Barry's like, oh, that curry, it acts fast. And so he tells him the bathroom's in the back. And so Kolchek exits the rear of the restaurant. Basically, he's cutting out and not paying for the food. And the door that he comes out is not the door that was surrounded by the swastikas, but it is next to it around a railing. So he goes over to it and it has a padlock on it. But as I mentioned before, there's like garbage everywhere. And so conveniently there's a crowbar laying around in the garbage. And so he grabs the crowbar and pops the lock on the door. And then he goes down a stairwell and he sees like your basic basement kind of on one side, when it's a big like storage area kind of thing. But then on the other side, through a couple of entryways, there's a room that kind of looks like a religious shrine. It's got candles everywhere and tapestries with single swastikas on them of both types. And the only real furniture, aside from the candle stands and some tables, seems to be a bed and a coat rack. So Kolchak is taking pictures. And while he's doing that, we see the lower half of someone dressed a lot like Barry and like the white pants and the shoes. And they're struggling to come down the stairs. They're also carrying a crossbow and they're maybe like they're injured or just have difficulty walking, but they are carrying a crossbow. Not a good thing to be coming down the stairs. So Kolchak continues to take photos. And then suddenly the old Indian man he saw in the alley appears with the crossbow. So it's actually him. It wasn't Barry. That's good. And 
but he's definitely having trouble walking, which he didn't seem to have previously. So maybe something happened. We don't know. But so simultaneously, Kolchek pulls up his camera to take a photo, and the old man fires a crossbow. And the bolt whizzes past Kolchek and hits the wall behind him, like segmenting a candle in the process. And Kolchek looks back at it and then just hauls ass out, runs past the old man and goes up the stairs. And then once he realizes Kolchek's gone, the old man was like trying to struggle to like load the crossbow as Kolchek runs by. But then once Kolchek is gone, he just kind of like leans against the wall and puts his head against it and raises his head up. And he kind of like does a prayer or a recitation. And he seems like he's near tears and he seems like really regretful and apologetic to someone or something like he's apologizing and doing a little prayer. So, yeah. So Kolchak's in the dark room and there's like dramatic music and he's developing photos. And then we just see one is the back of Lakshmi restaurant and it was taken right before Harry was killed. So Kolchak shrugs and walks to his desk with like two dripping photos and Vincenzo calls him into his office and Updike is there, and he's sitting and he's reading a file folder. And Vincenzo says Kolchak was all up in arms about the plight of the elderly in Roosevelt Heights, and he hasn't seen a single written word about it so far. And Kolchak's like, I'm working on it. In fact, I was there last night, and there's something very odd going on. And Vincenzo tells Kolchak his photos are dripping on his desk. So Kolchak shows him one of the photos, and Vincenzo says, oh, it's sad that a man that age has to work as a busboy. And Kolchak's like, no. This is East Indian clothing. He's not a busboy. He's the one who tried to shoot me with a crossbow last night. And Vincenzo's like, a crossbow? And he's like, yeah, see, this is where he lives. See all the swastikas on the wall? And Vincenzo's stuck on, like, crossbow. He's like, what? And Kolchak shows the first photo again. He's like, yeah, a crossbow. It's kind of blurry, but if you squint, you can kind of make it out. And Tony's like, a crossbow and swastikas. And he lives in Roosevelt Heights. And Kolchak is like, yeah, I've been doing some reading. The Nazis didn't invent the swastika. It's a Hindu symbol and it's very old and it's used to ward off evil spirits. Yeah. Ironic that, that it's used to ward off evil spirits and yet it's a Nazi symbol. No, it's a symbol of white supremacy and very disgusting yeah. racism and evil. Yeah. So Tony is trying to wrap his head around everything and he's just, <laughs> you know, Kolchak's always coming at him with all this stuff. And Updike chimes in that in 1066, the Saxons lost the Battle of Hastings because their crossbows were no match for the Norman longbows. And it resulted in the melding of two disparate cultures. And they both just kind of look at Updike like, what? And Vincenzo says, you know, Ron, in your quiet way. And then he's just like, thank you, Ron. Thank you. And he gets up and leaves and he, he looks at them strangely. And they look at him strangely. And Updike just sits at the desk and yeah, they just all sit there and look at each other for a while. And then we cut back to Vincenzo's office and Vincenzo says, non-sequitur is going to drive me into a state institution. And Kolchak says, the man said something about Raka something. And he asked if Vincenzo's ever heard of that. Vincenzo hasn't. And he doesn't care. He's going to finish what he's doing and he's going to go home because he's suddenly very tired. And Kolchak is <laughs> dripping on his desk. And so Kolchak leaves and Vincenzo just sits down on the couch in his office and is like, Indian swastikas, Norman conquests. Am I supposed to see God's design in all this? Uh, so poor Vincenzo. He's having like an existential crisis a little bit. So, yeah, I'm not the biggest fan of Ron. I mean, he's entertaining, but also I'm not, I probably wouldn't like Ron either if I was in real life. But I have to give him credit for using the word disparate. That's one of my favorite words. I use it all the time. Nice. It's a good word. 
Yeah. And I kind of like Ron because I don't know. He's. <laughs> He knows things and he's interesting. He knows things in his own way. Yes. So Kolchak has gone to his desk, leaving Tony's office, and he sits down and he pulls out some books from a drawer. And then he sees something in the beginning of one that's titled Indian Mythology. And so then he pulls out his trusty magnifying glass and he's looking at it. And then we cut back to the city and we're near the regent where the fever is still showing because it's only been like one day. So why wouldn't it be? Even though it seems like forever. And we get the lowdown via his voiceover. March 3rd, 12.15 a.m., Officers York and Boxman, 12th Precinct, making their normal rounds. They'd been told to keep an extra lookout since the events of the past couple days. It would have been better for them if they hadn't. So York comes out of a shop near the Regent. He's got two cups of coffee in his hands. Boxman is driving. York hands him a coffee through the window, and then he gets in the car and he yawns. He's like, what time is it? And Boxman looks at his watch, and he's like, it's only 2.30, which means that his watch is obviously broken because Kolchak just said it was 12.15, and we know Kolchak is never wrong. So, anyway, York sighs and says it's going to be another long night. And then Boxman sighs, and he takes a sip of coffee, and he grimaces because apparently it's not very good coffee. And he says, well, let's roll. He starts the car, and York yawns again, and there we are, folks, Chicago's finest. So, And I was apparently so distracted by the time screw-up that I didn't also notice the date screw up, but Tori did, and she can tell us about it. So basically in the beginning, they say it's October 14th, and then now mm-hmm. we're being told it's March 3rd. And I had mentioned this to Nick yesterday. I was like, I'm pretty sure they go from October to like April or something. And he's like, I'll check. So anyway, um, yeah, yeah. They, they jump a lot because obviously it hasn't been like four months or five months. It's been like, no, it's, it's been like a day, which is crazy pants because so much stuff has happened. Right. And I think that's why I just didn't even, it didn't even click because it's been so long since we got that first part, even though I like literally typed it, like it didn't even click to me. And then I was just distracted by the whole like 1215. 230 because that's like immediate and so it's like oh but yeah so good eye tori yeah so you know <laughs> x-files got inspired to get their dates very yeah, wrong of all the things you could learn from Coltech, chris carter you learn that hey we need to mess up the dates and <laughs> no one will notice except for tori I mean, it definitely yeah. happens like when you're especially i can imagine you're going through so many drafts of the script and one draft it's all october and then they switch it to march and you forget to change one and yeah. nobody notices and then it goes on the air and i'm sure somebody was like oh Yeah, I'd be curious to see, like, because we've talked before about how, like, the episodes don't seem to be, like, in a chronological order. They kind of jump back and forth in time from one episode to the next. And I'm going to go through at the end and actually try and put them in chronological order. So I'm going to have to probably do two versions, I guess, because we're not really going to get a definitive answer whether this actually is October or is March. Yeah. Um, Otherwise, it looks like it'd probably be either one. So, yeah, I don't know when the snow starts hitting in Chicago, usually. October sounds about right. I've never lived in Chicago, but just living in Lake Tahoe, like it can snow in October, but it can also still yeah. snow in March. So really. Yeah, I know. That's, either uh, one, either one. Yeah. I mean, it was snowing like Memorial Day weekend in Tahoe this year. So, you know, it keeps going. Lucky bug. We didn't get any snow reason I did not live in Tahoe anymore because I do not like the snow. That's not the only reason, but yeah, the snow is a big part of it. I just don't like digging out my car. No, thank you. So after some unspecified time, Boxman pulls over to the side of the road and York's like, why did you stop? And Boxman's like, I thought I saw someone run into that alley. And it looks like the alley that the Goldsteins were walking down. And York's like, okay, I'll check it out. But next shift, I get to drive all night. 
So he crosses the street and he flashes his flashlight into the alley and we see what looks like the back of a dark gray kind of like Bigfoot and it's like going through some crates and York shouts at the person to come out because he can't see the Bigfoot. It's like behind things. And Boxman runs over with his flashlight and he pulls out his baton, which good for you for not going for the gun first. And as York shines his flashlight, a policeman steps out from behind the crates and York is like, Sergeant DeVito? I thought you were in the hospital. And Boxman looks, and then we switch angles, and we see this well-dressed older lady, and she's standing by the crates. And Boxman is like, Mom? And York is like, what? And Boxman's <laughs> like, that's my mom. And we see his mom go back behind the crates, so Boxman like follows into the alley, and York stays put, and he's like, what are you talking about? That's Sergeant DeVito. And so Box enters the alley with his flashlight and baton and he goes behind the crates and then we hear some animal noises and crates are pallets breaking. And so York is still holding his flashlight and now he draws his gun and he heads into the alley. And from inside the alley, we can see the beast is bent over something and York appears behind it with his flashlight. And from York's POV, it looks like Sergeant DeVito is bent over the obscured body of Boxman. And DeVito stands and turns around and starts to silently walk towards York. And he's got like blood on him. And he's, you know, and York is like, stay back. Don't come any closer. Sarge, don't come any closer. But Sergeant DeVito keeps approaching. And so he has like blood dripping from the corners of his mouth. And he keeps coming at him. So York finally unloads his revolver into him. But the bullets don't do anything. And Sergeant DeVito just keeps coming. And York is backed against the wall. And he pulls the trigger, but his gun is empty. It's just clicking, 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 and then it's commercial. Man, yep. the commercials are really hitting on the deaths this time. Yeah, mm-hmm. they really are. Yeah. So we come back, and Kolchek is in a Hindu art gallery. And a man with white hair and what I like to call a British or gay accent is talking to a couple about a piece of art as Kolchek fiddles with like an ornate clock while he waits to speak to the man. So, of course, Kolchek sets the time off on the mechanism and the man, everyone gets kind of and the man's like, I'll be right with you. And then the chiming keeps going because Kolchek can't figure out how to make it stop. And everyone's kind of getting annoyed. But then it finally stops by itself. And the man continues talking with the couple about another piece. And then Kolchak accidentally knocks something over. And so the man excuses himself and goes to talk to Kolchak. And I didn't put it in my notes, but I do have to say it was kind of funny. So when the man is talking to the people, he's showing them a statue of Kali. And it's from the third century. And he has a little joke where he says he likes to say that the third century is when the cult of Kali flowered. And then they kind of look at him and he's like, cauliflower and they're like ha, 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 ha. So, yeah <laughs> yeah it's cute yeah so we get actually some pretty good comedy in this scene between kolchek and the guy but like the long and short of it is that kolchek managed to scare off at least one set of art buyers and possibly two and he learns about the Rixasha and that they are the servants of kali who are sent to our world periodically to test whether the world is prepared for armageddon They're able to read the minds of humans and appear to them as someone they trust or love most. And then the Rakshasha rends the flesh from their bones and consumes it. And the creature sounds unstoppable, 
And to be honest, it kind of is because it can only be stopped by an arrow blessed by Brahma himself. Oh, that's going to be hard to come by. If only he had run into an elderly Indian man with a crossbow full of arrows. Yeah, he might have been the servant of Brahma. Yeah, if only. (laughs) Only. So Vincenzo is in the private bathroom in his office and he's slapping on some cologne and Kolchak enters his office. He's got a pretty nice office. There's a couch and a TV and he's got a private bathroom. I mean, Man. he puts editors, up with Kolchak. He deserves it. We're pretty good <laughs> there. Yeah. So Check's story is sitting atop the television and Kolchak's like, oh, is this my story? And Vincenzo's like, do you mean the story that starts out about the plight of the elderly in Roosevelt Heights and then turns into a giant pile of crazy with a creature that looks like a gorilla with fangs? So, of course, they, they argue because Vincenzo thinks his story has gone from a reasonable expose or feature piece to, like, complete nonsense. Mm-hmm. So, during the course of their argument, they head out into, like, the general area and Vincenzo's, like, starting to leave. And he says that if the residents of Roosevelt Heights believe his story, it's because they're senile. And Miss Emily jumps up and she calls him out on, you know, his prejudiced views of old people and he apologizes and he says he's still not letting Kolchak's story go out on the wire and Kolchak basically asks if they can just put it out as fiction because then maybe someone will read it and take something away from it that will save their lives but Vincenzo crumples it up and he leaps and so Kolchak yells after him but you know Vincenzo keeps going. So Kolchak digs his article out of the garbage. And as he's pulling it out, Ron enters and looks at him. And they kind of like stare at each other. And then Kolchak finds all the sheets and he smooths them out. And he walks past Updike's desk and he's like, that's how I find all my stories. (laughs) Just funny. And Miss Emily tells Kolchak that all she could get out of Vincenzo was that he was going to the doctor for some shots. And Kolchak's like, I'd like to give him a shot in the head, which... Not very nice. <laughs> and then he grabs all the stuff and rushes out. Yeah. And then it's commercial. Well, at least no one dies at this commercial. That's good. Right. So, yeah. But yeah, it's kind of funny because usually Vincenzo's yelling after Kolchek to come back. And then now Kolchek's yelling at Vincenzo to come back. So I like that. That was kind of good. So then we see Lakshmi Restaurant. We get a nice shot from the outside like we got before when he was talking with Harry. And then we see Kolchek running down the alley behind it. And he hops the fence and he finds the door that he had popped the lock on is still open. So he kind of carefully enters and he goes down the stairwell. And inside he finds the elderly Rakshasha hunter lying on the bed and he's holding his crossbow. And he's kind of like in like a fever dream sort of thing. He's definitely not doing well. Um, He's dying. And he apologizes for shooting at Kolchak before. He says that his eyes are failing him. And his hands are as shaky as his confidence in being able to complete his task. He has been hunting Rakshashas as a servant of Brahma for 60 years. He has killed several, but he believes he will not live long enough to kill another, including the one here. And he says that it can sense his weakness and that it's coming. It's staying in the area. So he suggests that Kolchak take up the mantle because he doesn't have anybody to be his successor. And he tells Kolchak to hunt the Rakshasha. You must be true of heart. And have the knowledge that Rikshasha will appear as someone you trust. And you must believe so strongly that you're willing to strike the person you trust most down. Because otherwise you will face death by the creature. And Kolchak is kind of like, well, no problem here because I don't trust anybody. But the old man is like, no, don't be a fool. Rikshasha will reach into your mind and he will find the person you do trust. And he will use it against you. Yep. (laughs) 
So Kolchak reluctantly takes the crossbow and the last of the arrows blessed by Brahma as the old man continues to refuse medical attention and basically falls into a fevered sleep. Yeah, Kolchak's been trying to get him to like, let me take you to a doctor. Let me take you to a doctor. Yeah, and he's like like arguing. So as Kolchak prepares to leave, he hears a creaking sound and there's nothing in the stairwell. So he goes to the other side of the basement. It is a pretty huge basement. So yeah. I actually thought he was in an alley, like he had somehow gotten to the alley, but no, he's just in the basement the whole time. Yeah, it's it is a huge. Pretty big size, a good yeah. size basement. So eventually, Kolchak sees a shape approaching in the dark, and you know he's been wandering around and looking for something. And as the shape appears, we see that it's Miss Emily, <gasps> and he calls out to her, but she just silently approaches. And so he hesitantly raises the crossbow, and he tells her to stop and answer him. But we know the Rakshasha has always been silent as it approaches his victims. And Miss Emily is not speaking at all. So it's totally the Rakshasha. Ooh. And he tells her yeah. one last time to stop and answer him. And she does. Oh. And she says, I followed you out here because I want to see you work a story. She wants experience for her detective novel. So she wants to be out on the street, out on the beat, see how it works so that she can get some realism into her writing. And then she begins approaching him again and they continue to talk, but Kolchik tells her to stop. And Miss Emily's like, don't be silly. I'm feeling scared down here, Mr. Kolchik. I don't want to be alone. And so she keeps like approaching him and she's only feet away when he gives her one final warning. And then he fires the crossbow <gasps> and Miss Emily stands there with the bolt sticking out of her abdomen Oh, and Kolchak looks horrified at what he's done. He realizes he shot Miss Emily, his trusted oh. co-worker. But then we see the Rakshasha standing there before him with the bolt sticking out of its abdomen. <gasps> and we realize it wasn't Miss Emily at all. Whew. And so Kolchak starts to reload the crossbow. But then he realizes it's unnecessary as he looks down and the Rakshasha is dead. And then it's commercial. So we do get a death on this one, but it's a death of Rakshasha, so it's probably all right. And then we see Kolchak, and he's sitting at his desk, and he's talking into his recorder. And he says, I'd love to have told Miss Emily that the Rakshasha appeared to me as her. According to legend, it meant that I trusted her. But then I would also have to tell her that I shot a steel arrow straight into her. And I don't think she would have appreciated that. But in the final analysis, what's the difference? As long as we all trust each other, why should anyone's feelings be bruised? And then Miss Emily comes in, so he kind of like stops recording. And she is dressed up. She's got a fancy dress. And she's got like a glittery, like almost like a, I would almost say like a flapper dancer hat, like from the 1920s, something like that. But like a little kind of cap on. It's all glittery. Mm-hmm. And Kolchak says like, you look gorgeous, Miss Emily. And so she thanks him. And she's like, I have an appointment. And he's all business or pleasure and she's all business and then a dapper elderly gentleman comes in and he's like oh miss emily i'm mr cartwright and then miss emily introduces him to kolchek and they shake hands and he tells kolchek that it must be very nice working with such a great lady she gives the best advice even medical advice Everyone says goodnight, and Mr. Cartwright and Miss Emily are leaving. And then Kolchak is like, well, Mr. Cartwright. And then he remembers that the hormones, this is Mr. Cartwright, the dude who wrote the letter. And so he shouts after him. He's like, good luck, Miss Emily. And she's like, thank you. <laughs> and then they head out the office. And then Kolchak sits down, and he tries to remember where he left off. And he's like, oh, yeah. So if you happen to be walking along a lonely country road at night, and you see your favorite aunt coming towards you, 
good luck to you two. Yep. <laughs> and then end credits. So. Yep. Yep. So Miss Emily is going on a date. Yes, she is. And Mr. Cartwright got his hormone. So. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. So the Miss Emily letters in this episode are actually doubly related to the Ripper because they first appear in the Ripper. And then, you know, Miss Emily is, well, the actress who plays Miss Emily is in both has two different roles. But I also had to go back and add the details of the letter that Miss Emily and Kolchak read in my notes at the very end, because then obviously we need them at the end. And I actually had to do the same thing in Ripper, like when Kolchak and Tony are just kind of like offhandedly discussing the notes. And then it turned out they're important. I had to go back and add them. So sometimes you try to summarize and it turns out you can't cut stuff out. So, yeah, I'm trying to get brutal at what I cut out of the X File recaps, but it's hard because a lot of that's it's stuff hard is because important. you never know. Yeah, like I was like, okay, I'm summarizing, I'm summarizing because these notes are long, they're really long. There's a lot of stuff that happens in these episodes that we noticed in like one day. There's like three murders and everything, but yeah, but then I'm like, you get to the end, and you're like, oh crap, I gotta go back and put that back in. <laughs> okay, so yeah, you will sometimes hear that Richard Keel got his cold check hat trick in by playing the Rixasha in this episode because he played the monster in the Spanish Moss Murders and then he also he was the villain in Bad Medicine mm -hmm. but this has been confirmed that it definitely was not Richard Keel in this role but the identity of the actor who did wear the monster makeup in this episode has never been officially confirmed so we actually don't know who it was that played it it was yeah. it was Ted Cruz, <laughs> was Ted Cruz. <laughs> he, was, he was also the Zodiac and he was starring <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that's not even funny. That's a joke that wasn't even JFK. timely in 2020. So, Jesus. Yeah. My humor is bad. All right. Anyway. Yeah. yeah first. Although, actually, I think Bernie Sanders is the one who killed JFK. Oh, I see. I thought it was. Depends on who you talk to. Lee Harvey Oswald. But what do I know? Oh, uh, I don't know. Hmm. I mean, I have seen anyway. the musical Assassins. You think I'm pretty much. Oh, that's expert. true. I guess that's what I mean. We should definitely make sure we're taking our information. So, well-researched material. Yes. 100%. Yes. Yeah. Speaking of research material, so it turns out that Gary Gygax, creator of Dungeons and Dragons, actually has cited this episode of Kolchak the Night Stalker as the inspiration because there is a Raksasha in the Dungeons and Dragons game. And I actually uh, worked on the Wikipedia page for that because mm -hmm. there were some errors and I had to fix them cool. and correct the links. So I'm a nerd. Anyway, it's actually my very first Wikipedia editing it was on that. So. Oh, nice. That's how much Kolchak means to me. I was like, nope, this is someone is wrong on the internet. I have to fix it. So. <laughs> I always think of that scene from Parks and Rec where like Ben is like, I don't have time to tell you how wrong you are. And then he's like, no, wait, it's going to bother me if I don't. <laughs> I relate to that very deeply. <laughs> yeah. Well, mainly it was just the fact like they didn't de like the, the statement wasn't very detailed. And then the link they used, because, you know, like on message boards, you can choose like how many posts are per page yes and this was a huge message board it was basically like an like an early like ask me anything with like gary gygax so people were like posting questions and he would answer and then they would post questions and he would answer so it was like it was huge it was like pages and pages and pages and the link the person used they must have had the page count different so when you clicked on the link it took you somewhere and it wasn't the part that you were looking for and you had no idea how to find it um. so i finally found it and then I did the settings to where you could get the link that it doesn't matter what your pagination is and then put that in to the Wikipedia page because you know, it's important that people can read Gary Gygax saying like Kolchak is responsible for direct Sasha. So, but Barry Gordon, who we talked about earlier, Barry the waiter. So not only was he Donatello and Bebop, 
and don't confuse him with Barry Gordy Jr., Last Dragon. But he was actually the youngest performer to ever hit a pre-Hot 100 Billboard chart. At age six, he recorded the Christmas song, Nothing for Christmas. Mm -hmm. And it hit number six in 1955 when he was seven, because his birthday is on July 21st. So it hit like right after his birthday. It sold over one million copies and it was awarded a gold disc. Because that's what you get for a gold disc. Gold disc is one million copies. What's crazy, though, is that the song Nothing for Christmas was recorded and released by a total of five different artists in 1955. And his version is the one that hit number six. There was one by Joe Ward that hit number 20. There was one by Ricky Zond and the Blue Jeaners, which hit number 21. The Fontaine Sisters hit number 36. And then the Stan Freeberg version, which is actually the version that I know and listen to all the time. I don't know that I actually heard the Barry Gordon version. But that one hit number 53. So it actually is the lowest of them, even though it's the one that I know. All entered the chart on December 11th, except for the Stan Freeberg version, which entered the chart on December 18th. So that's crazy. There were like five versions of the song on the charts at the same time. And they all were like, like four of them were like in the top 40. Wow, that's That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And he was also the longest serving president of the Screen Actors Guild. He served from 1988 to 1995, which means we have two notable SAG presidents appearing in the Kolchak because Kathleen Nolan, who played Faye Krueger in The Vampire, she was the first female SAG president serving from 1975 to 1979. Nice. Yeah. That also means that for the entirety of his presidency of SAG, he was also the voice of a mutated human turtle and a mutated human warthog during his entire tenure. Yeah. So that's kind of weird. It's kind of I also awesome. never understood why Donatello was the tech guy because Leonardo da Vinci is the inventor dude. So why is Donatello the tech dude? Uh, because just... Donatello does machines, dude. It's in the theme song. Duh. Oh. <laughs> Leonardo leads Donatello does machines. Everybody knows that. <laughs> oh. uh, apparently I don't. So. <laughs> yeah and i definitely as a kid related to michelangelo because he was like the jokester and the funny one and that's how i like saw myself as a kid i'm probably more like leonardo or possibly donatello although i'm not very techie so i'm probably more leonardo more level-headed mm-hmm. dude sitting with his book trying to map out a plan i honestly couldn't tell you which one i am because i've never actually watched any version of teenage mutant Ninja Turtles in my oh, life man no cartoons no movies i've nothing. seen the movies i've seen the cartoons i saw both no. movies in the theater i mean me and my brother were obsessed i think richie was into yeah. it my younger brother was into it as well but like so all three of us were just like yeah yeah i mean i think i read the original comic at one point because i was a daredevil fan and they started out as a, like a parody homage of daredevil because so in the original comic, what happens is that the ooze that turns him into Mutant Ninja Turtles is actually the same radioactive stuff that gives Daredevil his powers as a kid. And the toxic waste comes down and blinds him. Yeah. And that toxic waste goes down into the sewer ah. and gives the Ninja Turtles their powers. And then also, like, there's the Foot Clan and Daredevil fights the Hand Ninjas. Oh, and, like, yeah, Daredevil's yeah. teacher is Stick. And then Splinter teaches the Turtles. So there's gotcha. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of similarities. See, yeah. in the movies... The ooze is the fault of PG and E and not disposing of toxic waste properly. Oh, so. well, it still could be. I mean, if PG and E was driving it in a truck, then yeah. it could still it could still fit. But yeah, yes. Man, I haven't seen those movies in a long time. Yeah. Anyway, I have a set of figures too. But nice. Yeah, we had action figures, but we probably destroyed them because you know we played with them. Yeah. 
Oh, I have like the comic base figure. So like they all have the red mask. They don't have a different color mask. Oh, I get why the, I get why they Boring. had different colors because it's a cartoon and they've got their initials on the belt buckle. But like I'm just like they all wear the red have mask. The different, you gotta have the different colors to identify apart, everyone. You, well, you tell them apart by their weapons. That's the thing. You tell them apart by their masks and their, they don't always have their weapons. What if they're hanging out eating pizza? How do you know who's? Well, who? I don't know that they really hang out and eat a lot of. Pizza uh, you didn't comic. watch the cartoon or the movies. There is a lot of I know. Around I'm just pizza. saying, it, I don't even remember the comic that well because I think I read it like a long time ago, which is kind of like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, it's Daredevil. <laughs> that's cool. And then kind of like, oh, whatever. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't my jam. So I was, I'm more of a G.I. Joe Transformers guy. I mean, I was five when the cartoon started airing. So I was so very yeah. into it. But, you know, <laughs> I wanted to be a Ninja Turtle or a Ghostbuster. I really wanted to be a Ghostbuster. A real Ghostbuster, undoubtedly. Or well, did you watch the real Ghostbusters yes. cartoon, or oh, were we talking yes. the movie? Okay. Oh, I didn't watch the movie, so I was older because it was too scary. So I watched. We watched the oh. cartoon, me and my brother, and then. But I have now seen all the movies. I'm a fan of all the movies. So. Yeah, talking about Ghostbusters movie is still fantastic, but man, there's a lot of stuff in there that does not age well. Yeah. Venkman is such a creepoid. I know. Like, he's, he's fantastic, but he's such a creepoid. I know, and I freaking I love him so much, but like, yeah, yeah. And there's and there's I mean, there's blowjob references in that movie. There's, See, there's all and kinds that of stuff in went there. Right over my head when I was. Yeah. I think we were allowed to watch it on Halloween when I was like. 10 or 11 yeah. or something my mom finally let us watch it and like I'm, all that stuff just you know right over the kids head well as we mentioned in aubrey that went over your head too yeah right? i mean i had no Molders idea what that was talking about i was kid i've always I'm, been intrigued by women named bj yeah, no so. idea <laughs> i just know that i have seen all the ghostbuster things i also watched extreme ghostbusters which oh. is the later cartoon that had egon and then like the younger people he was training like kylie the cheerleader who's like the goth cheerleader or i think yeah, she was goth and like that. used to be a cheerleader it was very good i liked that cartoon yeah. as well i don't think i ever saw that yeah and yeah, the ghost, the real Ghostbusters, though, because that that's where like Sam Hain was like one of the big villains. Yeah, Pumpkinhead dude. Yes, so, yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, eighties cartoons. <laughs> mm -hmm. This is these are the things that shaped me into the person that I am today. <laughs> da, da, da. Hello, <laughs> that's where it all came from. <laughs> um. So, what did you think of Horror in the Heights? I mean, it was okay. There's, you know, the swastika, because I get, I get what they were doing. I understand. They're not meant to be Nazi symbols. Still kind of uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, even then, eh, but especially this was also the time, now, especially today. Yeah, I would say we, we're carrying a lot of extra baggage around. This was also a time, I think in the 70s was when it started to be okay to start referencing that stuff because there was a long time when you just did not talk about that at all right because of world war ii and so i think i want to say the 70s when you start getting a lot of references to like movie and tv nazis again because it was like it was enough distance to where like and you were always obviously portraying them as villains right so which is interesting because this one like the characters think about it as a bad thing but it's actually the symbols are actually being used because, you know, he's trying to protect his place by putting the swastikas up because as we read from the little Britannica.com thing that the left-handed swastika actually works as a protector against evil spirits. Yeah. So, yeah. It's also a little mild racism, which, you know, I would expect well, from the seventies with, yeah, but it's still, it's a little uncomfortable. It did make me want to get Indian food, which I haven't had in a really long time. So um, that's, yeah. I'm going to give it some points for that, but also doc points for that because now I'm going to spend money on Indian food. Worth it though. Always worth it. 
Yeah, it is interesting, <laughs> though, because we have had at least two episodes, I think just two episodes, where we have been referring to Indians, meaning Native Americans, and then now we've got Indian, but we're actually talking Indian. So it's kind of it just kind of shows that weirdness of like you were calling Native Americans Indians because Columbus didn't know what the fuck he was doing. So yeah, yeah, so. it's kind of strange. Yeah, um, but. I'm looking at my other ratings for Kolchak to kind of figure out where this fits for me. I think this is a five. Yeah, I think it's a five. Um, it was like better than Bad Medicine. It wasn't super. I mean, it was it was entertaining, and some of the stuff was entertaining. But yeah, there was just some discomfort, and then you know the plot was okay. It wasn't anything bad. Just was right in the middle. Okay. I think I am going to go with. I'm also going to look at my, and I think I'm actually going to put it. I'm going to give it a seven. I think it goes along with the Spanish Moss murders, fittingly because Joe is in both of those. But also, I just I like I get it. The I think I'm able to detach myself from the Nazi thing and realize what they're doing with it. Yeah. So yeah. And, and I, I mean I pretty... get that too. It's just still just like Jewish neighborhood covered in these Nazi symbols and like, oh I mean I get yeah. why. We learn why. It's not a bad thing. It's still just like Ooh. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like if you want a prime example of appropriation, boom. The swastika is right there of like why appropriation is bad so yes a 100 percent. yeah <laughs> yeah um so but yeah a lot of people actually consider this the best episode of the series yeah i don't i mean to be fair i really loved the werewolf which was a werewolf on a cruise ship so maybe my taste level is yeah. not well, that was when we <laughs> talked about that we, we talked about that in the episode where i had always like that like seeing stills from that episode was one of the reasons why I never watched the series. I thought it was going to be like, it was going to be a campy degradation of the movies that I loved. And I am wrong and I am totally upset with my own biases because I have been missing out on watching the series for so long. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, I can kind of see why people would like it. It was, so the writer of this, Jimmy Sangster, he actually wrote several of the Hammer horror films. Okay. And directed and worked on them. So he is a one-off writer, though. And then so is the director on this case. But I think he's able to bring that kind of like, maybe like, this might be maybe closest like to maybe the Richard Matheson model that we get a little bit, who wrote the two TV movies. I guess that's why people might love it so much. Is because it's got, it's got a little bit more of that like 70s horror feel to it. Yeah, I mean, it did have a good plot. I think it's an interesting premise that these old people are dying in this like horrible way. And it's just getting written off as like, oh, well, they just, they're old. They just die. That's what old people do. And oh, I guess the rats are eating them, even though it's been a very short amount of time and there's not a lot of evidence. So it's just, it's kind of interesting too, because it's, you know. Yeah, they get, they actually do cram a lot into this episode because you've got like, you've got like social commentary, like levels of social commentary. You've got like some anti-Semitism commentary. You've got obviously a monster story. You know, we've got like, you know, you know, poor people need to, you know, be taken care yeah. of and that kind of thing. So there's actually a lot in this. We, I mean, we, almost in every Kojak episode, the cops suck. We kind of get that all the time. So that's, you know, fitting. 
but there's a, there's actually a lot of stuff yeah. in like just, that's not really touched on, but it's like just hinted at in this. And I think it probably hit stronger when it originally aired too, like a lot of the commentary, just because of what was going on. Like the you know the talking about the like in the opening voiceover, he talks a lot about inflation and that kind of thing. And so I think a lot of that probably hit really stronger back then too. But. Yeah. Also, I forgot to mention, like it is kind of funny that like the Rakshasha doesn't speak at all and doesn't seem to be able to speak, but then at the end. It can like pull out some words, which I know why they did it that way. They did it that right. way because yeah. they needed us, the viewer, to really believe that yep. this was Miss Emily so that we're really conflicted and the cold check is really conflicted. But at the same time, it was just one of those things where like couldn't speak before or at least it wasn't. And I definitely got the impression that it couldn't. And then all yeah. of a sudden it did. But I get I mean, I totally get why they did that, because that made the scene more tense and yeah. More. But it's also messing with people's minds, so why couldn't it like pull voices out? Yeah, that's you're, true. And you're basically and you're basically like having a conversation with yourself, sort of. Yeah, well, I'm just so, saying like yeah, if you nope. establish something in the show, and then you kind of like yeah. doesn't mean that well, they didn't the establish thing. it couldn't talk, so yeah, they didn't do saying, that. Yeah. But they did like sort of establish that it you're really doesn't. And then at the end, yeah. it suddenly does. So anyway, I just thought that was interesting, but I totally get why they did it because obviously, like ramps up the tension makes you doubt like is this the rakshaka or is it miss emily trying to research her detective novel which is a totally reasonable thing for her to be doing mm -hmm. so yeah yeah it does make sense yeah because we, we would know if she just kept coming and never said anything we would automatically be like oh yep the shooter carl boom killer so yeah i get it too but i tried to portray that that in my in my dramatic rendering as yeah. you read it i'm wondering if i should give this a six action. i'm kind of questioning because it was i'm gonna give it a six <laughs> well because the more i think of it, it is pretty good and like i think it is okay yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna up it to a six it does have right. its it has its issues and again in 2020 last thing i want to do is stare at a bunch of swastikas even if i know what they're mean and what the point is it's very hard yeah. but it does make sense and it is it is a well crafted script like it does all work and there were some Alrighty. good scenes with Vincenzo. I love Vincenzo. Yeah. That's the thing with this show. There's always. Yeah, like, there's always. That are, yeah. yeah. I feel like X-Files is that way too. Like there's always like good stuff between Mulder and Scully most of the time. <laughs> but. Mm, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I just think a two. And I mean, maybe it's just because like different generations and that kind of thing. It seems like. Things were much more character centered back then and like we've seen we talked about like in the werewolf we talked about that like there's scenes between characters that i'm pretty sure that those are like off the top of their heads just like the little the little side interactions that don't really have to do with like the real dialogue but they just do things kind of little carryover conversations like in backgrounds or whatever that i don't that i don't necessarily see in like more modern stuff and i don't know if that's a style or if that's the quality of the actors and actresses or what, but, or directors or story writers or whatever. I think it depends just, too. Cause like, it depends yeah. on how strict they are. Cause some shows like will let actors, like especially background actors or whatever, kind of not, not background, not like extras, but like people with small roles, they'll kind of let them take a little more ownership of their stuff. And sometimes the director's really rigid and will direct every single thing. And so I think it just depends a lot too. Yeah, and the style of show and all those things, and it could just be the nostalgia goggles I got on. Who knows? So, who knows? 
All righty. That was Horror in the Heights. Yeah. I Want to Rewatch is hosted by Tori and Nick and recorded at Black Cat Studios. Episode production, design, and editing is by Lazy and Productions. Our music is Dark Science by David Hillowitz, and The Truth is What We Make of It by The Agrarians. Our premium feed is where you can find all of our X-Files adjacent bonus episodes covering television and films that are, you guessed it, X-Files adjacent. If you like these bonus episodes, tell a friend about our Patreon page. We'd love to have them join us. Speaking of which, be sure to join us next time as we rewatch episode 12 of Kolchek the Night Stalker, Mr. Ring. And try to figure out if the, the truth, truth is, is still out there. by Jimmy Sangster and directed by Michael T. Caffey. And its original air date was December 20th, 1974 at 10 p.m. Okay, can you do the written by again? Because you weren't sure how to say Sangster. You're like, no, I was Jimmy not. Jimmy Sangster? Sangster? <laughs> Sangster. It sounds like a gangster. but it's I mean, like... we're not an anti-upspeak podcast, but... no. Yeah. If we were, I would be in trouble because, like, <laughs> I'm, I'm really trying to end my sentences and make them sound like not questions because I noticed that something. Well, that I think, and up, I think but... I do more vocal fry than any woman I've ever heard on the planet. I honestly. still don't even so... really understand what vocal fry is, and I've worked. It's in when audio you go like, like so... thirty years. Yeah, I don't. When you do I, that, I honestly, that. I think vocal fry is fake. That's my conspiracy theory. I it's don't just think dragging it a syllable out and letting it drift away. I don't think it it's a real thing. I think it's just a way to misogynize and be yeah. assholes to women because you don't like hearing them talk. No, but it's funny because I remember when I listened to Lexicon Valley about that, like way back, like years and years ago yeah, when yeah. it first started becoming a thing, I was like, oh, I do both of those things. You <laughs> really know, like bad. Ira Glass is saying, <laughs> like, he has more vocal fry than anyone on This American Life, and yet it's always the women. Yeah. Like, everyone's bitching about Sarah Val, and I'm like, are you fucking kidding? Mm-hmm. Like, anyway. Yeah, I can't, ev- I can't just, I don't know, Sarah Val, I can't even envision her doing vocal fry. Yeah, I don't think but she does. Anyway. She's very monotone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love Sarah Val. I punched her in the arm once. It was for charity. Oh. Yeah.